Hey, uh, welcome back to our sermon series on Acts. Um, we took a really good pause for the, the Easter season, really leaned into the cross of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, celebrated that, and we're, we're now returning for about four weeks to, uh, to Acts. And um, today what we're going to do is uh, we are going to approach the passage, which is only 12 verses long. We're going to approach it from some different perspectives, okay? Uh, so we are going to look at it through the, the lens of a Roman commander, um, a religious leader, and of course the Apostle Paul. So I want to start with, uh, with the Roman commander, and this is kind of a little bit of a rewind. Start with this Roman commander that we met in Acts 21, who quite frankly I feel really sorry for. Um, the more I read this guy's story, because he's with us for a while in Acts, I just feel for the guy, you know? Um, has anybody ever watched the TV show Cops? Come on. Okay, true confession, this is a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, the episodes are old and grainy, but I just love the action on the street. Anyway, so if you've ever seen Cops, okay, real-life police arrests on the street, um, that's kind of like this Roman commander when he first enters the scene. Uh, he is dispatched one day. Um, he's dispatched to the temple with some guards to go check out a public disturbance in Acts 21. And by the time he arrives on the scene, it's more than a public disturbance. This thing, it, it has gone crazy, this situation. He rolls up on the seed, a scene, and there is a huge mob outside the temple now. And everyone is yelling and screaming and going wild. And in, in the center of the mob is this guy named Paul who is being beaten. So the commander rolls up, and this is a crazy thing to deal with. And so he, he calms everybody down in Acts 21, and he begins to just talk to witnesses, um, try to find out what, what in the world is happening here. And um, he can't get a straight answer from anyone. You know, one guy's yelling this, one lady's yelling that, and, and they're just back and forth, can't make sense of any of it. And then um, it all whips into the same frenzy it was before. And it gets so crazy that this guy, Paul, is just being pulled and ripped, and it's like he's going to be torn apart by this crowd. And so this commander, very baffled still, not knowing what he's come upon and why whatever is happening is happening, um, th this guy tries to escort Paul out of there with his guards. And you remember a couple of weeks ago, it's, they probably had to lift him over their heads to get him out of there. And so this is how his day starts, you know. This is his shift. And um, then as he's escorting Paul on the way out, Paul asks him something very strange. Paul asks the commander if he can go back and talk to the crowd. And you can just see the commander going, do you have a death wish? You know, I mean, why in the world would you want to go back to these people and talk to them? But in an effort to get to the bottom of whatever's going on, the commander lets Paul do it. I, I imagine a little guard, you know, a little guard group around him as he speaks, but Paul begins to speak. The crowd quietens down, and it seems like perhaps they're going to get to the bottom of this thing with everyone listening until Paul says that one word, right? He brings up Gentiles, and everybody goes wild again. So again, from the viewpoint of the, of the commander, this, this is the craziest day he's had in a long time. 
And so he decides that he will do one thing that they did back in the day, the ancient Near East. He decides he'll just take Paul back to the barracks, to the station house, and they'll just beat the truth out of him. Um, that, that They will whip him until that they, they get something sorted out here. But then Paul plays that card. Uh, he tells him that he's a Roman citizen. So you can beat a slave, you can beat a Jewish person, you can beat a foreigner, you, you can use those tactics. Roman citizens can't do it. So once again, here is the Roman uh, commander, what to do with all of this. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we just acknowledge as we, we look at all of this that the Apostle Paul is in an absolute storm. Um, the, the end of Acts is a wild story of a man who... He's, he's being pushed around, he's being beaten, he's being accused, he's standing before uh, courts and, and having to defend his life. And yet, God, the miracle of all of this is that Paul keeps his eyes on you. Um, even amidst the fear he must feel, the shaking inside. And we just pray the same thing for us. We live in a world that is anything but predictable right now. Um, Father, in and out of the church. And Lord, we, we just want to be people who uh, are, are not, our, our hearts are not set by what is going on around us, but on the, the Lord of heaven and earth. That, God, we would be people who look to Jesus and seek Jesus and just stay within the confidence of your promises in this life you've given us. So, Lord, today, speak to our hearts. We need it. We know that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we all acknowledge we have a very bewildered commander, right? Okay. So uh, let's see what happens next. Acts 22, 30 through 23, 11. The Roman commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and he ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had Paul stand before him. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and some of them were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. 
He ordered the troops to go down and take Paul away from them by force and bring him back to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. So you see, what, what's happened here is this Roman commander, um, in one final desperate move, at least at this moment, to try and discover the truth, he calls the Sanhedrin together. Now, let's make sure we know who the Sanhedrin is. Um, the Sanhedrin was a, a Jewish court system, all right? So in every major city, maybe even medium-sized city in Israel, they, they would have a Jewish court system. And they were made up of Jewish priests, okay? So local Jewish priests would come together and they would constitute this. And yet the, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, they are like the supreme court, okay, of Judaism. So these are the players, right? These are the big wigs. If, if y'all are old, older like me, uh, these guys are E.F. Hutton, right? When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. So this group has some power, all right? Paul, Paul is not standing up in front of, you know, Barney and Andy and Mayberry. I mean, this is a really, really big deal. So, so it's, here are these Jewish priests, and um, though they come from different, uh, kind of different factions of Judaism, uh, they are united in their belief that God's law rules, okay? That God's word sets the boundary lines, that we are to live by God's word, and they judge by the word of God. But the thing is, and we, we kind of saw it leak out of the passage a little bit, these guys differ on their interpretation of some of God's law, okay? So here they are, and um, the commanders called them together. He's finally going to get some kind of answer here. And so we shift now from the Roman commander to Ananias, okay? Uh, Ananias, who has a, a very fine, dignified title, high priest, okay? So uh, here is a man worthy of not much, okay? Uh, history tells us, all right, to quote the little girl from Rocky 1, where she looks at Rocky and she goes, Rocky, you're a creepo. That is Ananias, all right? Now, I want you to know, I want you to know my heart is pure today. I'm not just going, well, I don't like what I read. Historically, Ananias was a total creep. Um, the first century historian, uh, Josephus, wrote about him, and, and he claims, actually he states very firmly, that Ananias was known to skim off the tithes in the temple. Not just his temple, but every priest that was under, underneath him, he got kickbacks from him. And he lined his pocket and Ananias became very wealthy. Uh, the Jewish Talmud, okay, so this is, this is historical, ancient Jewish religious literature, says this, they have a parody of Ananias, okay? They take Psalm 24-7 and they wrote a parody of it. And if you have access to Talmud, it's still in there, okay? I lifted this from the Talmud this week. It says, lift up your heads, you ancient gates, that Ananias may go in and fill his belly with the divine sacrifices of Yahweh. Ooh. Historically, too, Ananias was connected to assassination attempts, uh, he was uh, connected to all kind of corruption, embezzlement, coercion. So just so we get the feeling here, here now is the Apostle Paul in Acts 23.1, Paul, a godly, 
God-fearing, biblical-living, righteous, holy man standing before the Sanhedrin who is basically led by a religious mafia boss. That's the feeler. How do you think that's going to go? Exactly. That's exactly how it's going to go. Paul opens up, okay, making a very clear statement here. Paul says, brothers, and essentially saying this, brethren, okay, identifying with them, brethren, I have lived and served God faithfully. I have done nothing wrong. So Paul is coming right out of the gate saying, look, before God, before mankind, before the mob on the street, my conscience is clear. I've done absolutely nothing wrong. And Ananias, now that we know who he is a little bit, he responds to that. He responds by ordering that uh, some of the folks standing near Paul smack him in the mouth or punch him in the face. Does that that sound familiar? This has happened before. This happened to Jesus uh, at the end um, before the crucifixion. So here is Paul being ordered to be punched in the mouth. And there are, just so you know, millions of theories what was going on. Millions of guesses, you know, maybe Paul was heretical. You know, maybe Ananias, you know, the milk in his cornflakes was sour. It ranges all over the place, but none of those excuses even matter because Jewish law clearly forbids that any punishment can be given to somebody before there's a pronouncement of guilty. And so you see what's going on with Ananias here is he is way out of line. You know, this godly man who is a high priest, he's way outside of God's boundary lines. He is. But what's he doing? Well, he's protecting his interests. Paul is a threat. He, he, he's got to somehow change the action very quickly. And what Paul does then in verse, thir- uh, verse 3, and there are many other theories here, but Paul loses it when this happens. I mean, he, he absolutely loses it, and he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to God's law, and yet you yourself violate God's law by ordering that I be smacked in the mouth. And while the, 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 um, uh, so, and, and while, uh, I just lost my train. Okay, there we go. And while the other priests rebuke Paul, right, for being insubordinate, for again, being punched in the mouth, right? While while they do this, um, there is something very important that we can miss in what Paul has just said. Paul has just dropped something here that we don't want to miss because something is getting ready to happen in Ananias' life. In AD 66, all right, just a few years later, Ananias will be on the run for his life for his dirty deeds, right? For being a, as a, as they used to say in Jane's youth group, for being a dirty dog, right? So it catches up with Ananias. He actually goes on the run for his life. He hides in an aqueduct, okay, kind of like a ditch. He's pulled out by a mob and he himself is beaten to death. So what Paul has said, and right, there's some tone here. We, we can't ignore that. Paul is hot, livid, right? But what Paul has said to him, it is a prophetic word from God. God is going to strike this man down for his corruption and for his greed. So there you have that. And yet, we now gain some very valuable insight into Paul's character, okay? Not just he can be used by God to deliver 
a, uh, a prophetic word, but we see here something in Paul that people miss in him, and it's incredible humility, okay? Uh, if you ask me, okay, thank you for asking me, Paul is in the right here, okay? Paul has every right to be angry, you know? I, I'd probably been a little hotter than that, right? I might have lunged or something, but I, I, I identify with Paul. I get it, but still look at his humility in this moment, because when Paul discovers that he has just slammed the high priest, and by the way, you might wonder, how does Paul not know he's talking to the high priest? Don't you think that would be obvious? Okay, you're standing in front of the Sanhedrin, okay? There's your, your supreme justice right here. You would think Paul was no, would know he's talking to him, but there, there are some really interesting theories here. Um, one thing we know about Paul from Scripture is that Paul had very bad Breath, no, eyesight, okay? Pa Paul, real, he, he had very bad eyesight, okay? Here, here's another possibility. In the moment, Paul might be looking the other direction when that command is issued, so he wheels around on the Sanhedrin and says it to all of them. But there is a very interesting translation possibility here. I, I, I almost didn't tell you, but I, no, I figured, no, I've got to drop this on you. You could translate this in the Greek without stretching very much, for Paul to be saying, I didn't know a man like this could be high priest. Given the tone, it's a real possibility here. But, but nevertheless, when Paul is confronted, he publicly apologizes. And I love that he holds himself to the same standard he put on Ananias. He just held him to the word of God. And so he says, you know what? You're right. Just as God's law um, forbids you from, from punching me in the face, God's law also prevents me from speaking out uh, against um, religious leaders, even if he is a corrupt creepo. God's law forbids me. And the bottom line here with Paul, and I love this, is he is at, at least respecting the office that God has put in place, even if it's pretty tough to, uh, to, to respect the person that's occupying that office. And then Paul does something brilliant, okay? And y'all, this is a Solomon-esque move, okay? Um, Paul being very knowledgeable in, in Jewish tradition, Jewish history, the makeup of the Jewish world, being very knowledgeable about all of that and being led by the Spirit, in other words, being as innocent as a dove and as wise as a serpent, Paul says this, I stand before you today, because of my belief in the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead, pointing to Jesus Christ. And here there are two really important things to note. Number one, Paul is being absolutely truthful, okay? What do we know about Paul? Saying to the church, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Christ and him crucified. The resurrection is always at the center of everything Paul proclaims. He is all about the risen Lord and the, the salvation life. So that is very true. But number two, um, Paul has just pressed the biggest hot button issue between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? Sadducees do not believe in the miraculous. They do not believe in the supernatural, the Pharisees do. And so what Paul does here simply is he pushes Jesus right into the center of the courtroom, okay? And when he does that, it's like lighting a fuse, stepping back, and boom, watching the whole thing go off. And it does go off. 
these two groups get into a wild argument, okay? This is the energy of the mob outside just a, a day or so ago. But they get into this wild fight that turns so violent that Paul once again uh, is about to be torn apart. And so the now frustrated, baffled, bewildered commander once again has to get Paul out of there, has to march him right back out. And the passage ends, and understanding this about Paul, um, do, do we all acknowledge that at this point, Paul is probably pretty rattled, you know? I mean, he seems pretty cool and calm in the court, but put together his last few days, right? Goes to Jerusalem, he's almost torn apart at the temple. He's beaten, soldiers roll up, they take him out of there, they bring him back. The crowd goes wild again, not in a good way. He has to be carried off. He's almost beaten. Then he gets carried in front of this court. He's almost torn apart by these guys. Paul has been pretty brave and he's been pretty amazing, but Paul has got to be rattled. He's got to be shaken. There have got to be questions in his mind like, my gosh, following Jesus, is, is everything falling apart here? Is this ministry for nothing? I, I, I just I feel like, like bait that God is dangling out there. So the risen Lord Jesus comes to him. You know, he's met Jesus before on the Damascus Road, Jesus comes to him and he comforts him and he encourages him. And, and he says, Paul, this is not the end, you know? You, you're not dying here. You have testified faithfully for me here in Jerusalem. And you're gonna go on to do the very same in Rome. Wow, it's a lot of action for one day. So let me, let me review real quickly and then we'll land the plane. I'm reviewing the characters once again. We have this Roman commander who, even at the end of this passage, is baffled. He is really confused. He's got to be frustrated with these religious leaders especially. But, but he's also a man, and we'll see this as the story plays out. He's actually becoming more and more taken with Paul and impressed with Paul, so much so that he will go on, and we'll see this, to really be an advocate for Paul and even to protect Paul. And so there's this wild, ironic shift that's been happening where we see the Jews, who, who are Paul's original family, more and more and more. They are becoming Paul's enemy. And Rome is becoming more and more of an ally and a protector for him at the end. So you have him. Then you have Ananias, who, who again, just he just keeps on sinking, right? I mean, he just swirls down the drain into this swamp of religious self-indulgence, um, his life will end pretty soon after this. And then we have Paul, who again, emotionally shaken up, um, pro probably very spiritually exhausted. And yet at the end of this passage, Paul is 100% sure that God is for him. And what I love also about verse 10 is that we get the message that not only is God for Paul, God is with Paul in that Jesus Christ comes and ministers to him, and in that the Holy Spirit has filled this man, is filling this man, and will continue to fill this man up. So, so God's presence is on him. And so the real question now is, what do we do with this story? Okay, 21st, this is first century, we're 21st century. What do we do with it? Let me start with Proverbs 16, 7, which says this. When a man, and this is all humanity, when, it, when a human being, but a man's ways please the Lord, God makes even his enemies be at peace with him. 
What Paul is demonstrating for us all throughout Acts is what it means to please the Lord. Because that's a great statement if you know what it means to please the Lord. How do we please the Lord in this way? Well, three things we see right here uh, in Paul is, number one, Paul always stands on the Word of God. Always. His his, uh, preaching is the Word of God. His ministry and and his mission, they are the, the directions of Jesus and the Great Commission. I mean, Paul is just all about the Word of God. He even, and again, we just saw it, right? Paul binds himself to the Word of God. When Paul gets out of line with the Word of God, he pulls himself back. Paul corrects churches, challenges churches with the Word of God. Absolutely fundamental to his life and pleasing the Lord. Something else Paul does, we've pointed out already, is Paul has a firm commitment to keep Jesus Christ at the center the resurrection, salvation, new life. I mean, you can look around in in our life and times, do we ever see churches kind of losing sight of the mission? You know, I I know as elders, we meet and we remind ourselves, hey, let's don't get off track. Let's make sure Jesus is right in the middle of everything we do. So he stands on the word, he keeps Jesus at the center. And then the, the, the final thing Paul does here for us is he just has this bold, firm, loving humble posture before men. And it is a beautiful thing to see. And so what we can do with this is you can actually take this and embrace it and kind of adopt it as as a model for church health. You know, everybody everywhere is talking about, you know, after the pandemic, lots of people left the church. And how do we grow? How do we become vibrant again? And the theories Oh, they, they start spinning and the books start coming out and the new strategies and structures and, you know, all that's well and good. It might work for you or maybe for you over there. But um, going right back here, stand on the word of God, put Jesus at the center, walk boldly, humbly, lovingly before God and man. What happens when you do that, when we do that as a church, is uh, if we do miss, we won't miss by much. We won't miss by much if love, humility, the Word of God, Jesus are, are, are all that we are about. And then, by the way, there is one more thing we need to do, okay? And for us, it's we need not to forget. Um, not forget what we all talked about last week. You know, some of us came to the retreat. Uh, some of us were here for, for church. Maybe we did both. But, but the other, a big part of humility is prayer. In the church of Jesus Christ, we want to get back to praying. I've, I've been doing ministry for oh, a long time now, okay? Um, I've been doing ministry for, for like three decades now in, in a pastoral function. I have so many strategies, so many ideas, so much logic. I can do all this math in my head. Well, if we do this and add that to this, then this is going to happen. Do you know the truth is? That's, uh, that's not true. That isn't true. We discover who we are and what we are to be about looking up, right? Looking up to Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't walk in the will of God if we don't know the will of God. We had this huge uh, session retreat yesterday and uh, talking about the future. And what I love so much about this session is we started in prayer and we started saying, you know what, guys, We need to, especially in this day and age, we have got to discern our way forward versus just going with the loudest voice in the room 
or taking a poll of the church and going, well, you know, 57% like this and 43 are over here. Well, I guess the 50%, 57% has, has not a way to do the kingdom, especially in this day and age. So our commitment is to pray. We want to seek the will of God. We want to see what God is up to. We want to respond to his call. We, we want to be led by that still small voice saying, go right or, or go left, because he knows and his plan is perfect. Together as a staff, as elders, and please as congregants, let us pray, right? Let Jesus show up and say, hey, you know what? This is a house of prayer. We really want to do that walking in these principles. So simple stuff, good stuff today. And um, man, just look at the Apostle Paul, the example we're given here. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. And God, I thank you that there is not a seminary degree on the planet that can rightly empower us to be in charge of your church. That there, there isn't experience enough to make any pastor, any elder, any leader worthy to build the church around himself. And so God, what we want to do is we want to be like the Apostle Paul as a congregation, preferring one another, uh, living out that greatest commandment to love you first and foremost, to love one another. And God, we want to be like the examples we have in Scripture. Um, Father, you, we want to hear your voice and be led by you, Holy Spirit. We want to be filled up and poured out. And God, we're ready to see the trend reverse where churches are filled with people who already know you, already love you, and yes, they're growing, which is good. But God, where we see salvation happening, we see new life, we see the broken made whole. We, God, we, we, we see the community that is outside of these doors saying yes to Jesus Christ, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime. So Father, do everything you need to do in us to realign us, to wake us up, to revive us, to refresh us, to excite us, to inspire us. God, fill us with wonder at who you are. And God, thank you in advance for using us. Thank you so much for using us to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.